This is a McKillop Farm Management Group podcast. We acknowledge and respect the traditional owners of the ancestral lands, Potterwich to the north, Jawajali to the east, Bowendick to the south and Meetung to the west of the Limestone Coast region. We acknowledge Elders past and present and we respect the deep feelings of attachment and relationship of Aboriginal peoples to country. Hello and welcome to The Prosperous Farmer, a podcast telling the stories of farmers in the Limestone Coast and Western Victoria. I'm Meg Bell and today I'm here chatting to Woolumble farmer and Nuffield scholar Graham Clothier and agricultural advisor Felicity Turner. Thanks for joining us. Graham, can you tell us a bit about how you first got into farming? Well, I first got into farming after doing the ag course at Lucendale and a family farm was calling at home so I shore for a few springs and then went to Queensland and did a little bit of a stint in southern Queensland before coming home full time on the farm and Karen and I were married in 84 and then we became partners in the farm with my two other brothers and my father. And you've been involved with sheep production and sheep management for quite some time Tell us about your operation when you first started out and what's changed between now and then. When we first started out, we were a pretty well a pure wool-growing enterprise like a lot of southeast properties were. And the wool boom in the late 80s was a good time to be in agriculture, but um, as most booms, they bust. So uh, it was very tough through the 90s because there was... Uh, Red meat wasn't really cranking yet, and it took till 2000 really to um, get that red meat um, going. And then our, our enterprise mix transferred through to 80% red meat and 20% wool. Tell me a bit more about the specific things you've done between first starting out and and now what what those things have been that have that you've actually implemented on farm to change when we started out as a family group we had a property in the Mallee in the late 80s of 2100 acres and we were farming 5500 acres at Warrnambool we had all the sheep studs we had a pole dorset stud a white suffolk stud and a merino stud as well that we started a bit early 90s i think we started that and we were farming that as a family unit with my two brothers and their families and myself and Karen and my mother and father. And then my father retired in 96 and we sold the Mallee property and then consolidated back to Wollongbool. And we farmed there till 2008 and then Phil and his family went off on their own and Lee and I farmed from then till 2014 and then Lee and Debbie retired and that left Karen and I with 1,600 acres at Wollongbool and uh, the sheep that Lee and I were farming. From then, we've then uh, purchased in four little tranches down south of Narracourt. We've built up 1,000 acres down there for uh, lamb finishing and hay and silage. And we're now running 3,500 ewes uh, with a split of 1,000 merinos and 2,500 crossbred ewes, and uh, those ewes are White Suffolk Merino first crosses. And in 2017, we started with laying hens as well, as pastured hens, with uh, the Splendid Egg at Mount Gambier, 
We started with a thousand hens and we're now running eight and a half thousand hens out in the paddock. And so what was the reason for diversifying into those laying hens? And the main reason was uh, the price of land and our, uh, our equity. Uh, doubling our sheep production would have taken, you know, four or five mil in the back pocket and we, our capacity to borrow that wasn't there. So we had to do something because um, our eldest son, Sam, was keen to come home to farm after going to uni and doing his Bachelor of Business at Marcus Oldham, he then worked on a farm in southern New South Wales for two years and then worked with TDC for two years and he was keen to come home. So it was it was the way to get Sam home by running a more intensive business and uh, cranking up our gross income that way. What sort of skills have you had to develop that have been different for managing those laying hens compared to managing your well you said you're certainly learning every day with with the hens in the paddock that's for sure and um, we don't know it all by any means but I think you just have to leave yourself open to uh, learn and listen and see what others are doing and then try and you know get that back on farm on your your in your patch and so in terms of the actual technologies and innovations that you've implemented into your business to, to help you with those hens and, and also with the rest of your farming production, what sort of technology have you, have you started using or have you been using and what's that allowed you to do? Certainly our, um, our, probably our largest innovation uh, has been clay spreading and delving. We've done a lot of that over the years since 96. We've been playing around and spending money in that area and that has really it really kept us in agriculture really because um, our soils were going backwards since the our aphid came through and wiped all the loosen out back in oh, mid mid 80s I think that was uh, there was aphid resistant varieties around but what that did was that the rainfall in winter would then run off the hills onto the flats and you'd get inundated flats and and non-wetting hills that were uh, not accepting the moisture and it was just exacerbating the problem. Hence our water table rose on the flats and then brought with it salinity. So clay spreading was the one way of getting around that as well as drainage because the Fairview drain was put in and finished in 97. That, that had a good effect through, through that entire area. Once we started clay spreading, you were retaining the moisture up on the hill, retaining the fertiliser up there. Chemical uh, use was better, and therefore you didn't get that percolating effect down to the water table, and the salinity levels decreased, partly because of drainage and partly because of clay spreading. And so what other technologies have you been using? Since inception of land plan, we've um, had all our sheep well, uh, our studs uh, on land plan, and, and we don't run any studs anymore. Phil took them uh, back in 2008, but it, that was a instrumental in running our sheep enterprises profitably because we could, um, if you get your genetics right with ESBVs, you can then utilise your feed that you produce to its maximum. The other, the other things we've done is been involved in a benchmarking group, the South East group that Elkie Hocking runs, and we've we found that as a um, family unit to be very good in 
in honing each enterprise and fine-tuning it and seeing what we need to change. And you also, in that group, you get off farm and see what others are doing and see how they are changing their operations as well because that's a, a open open chat when we so all the figures are on the table so it's it's a very good group to be involved in the use of the brawler gene in in our flock has been a very good addition and phil's now developed a sheep called the multi-meat in conjunction with colon eel so we have a, a percentage of those through our flock and they're a high fecundity sheep so you quite often get triplets and can get quads as well so we we're at the stage now of buying a milk rearing machine and whisking one of those away and rearing them on uh, cow's milk. In 84 we built a raised shed with all the bells and whistles in it and that was uh, a pretty outstanding thing to do at the time because we had uh, didn't have a lot of money. Our old shed was absolutely knackered so we had to do something so we had to bite the bullet and do it and it was the best thing we ever did really because your uh, workspace for sheep has to be good to enjoy doing what you're doing so that was a really good thing to do. The other thing that we've implemented and used widely is scanning. We've been scanning since the mid 90s for pregnancy type and like doing the lifetime new management course People uh, are learning that once you get those uh, twinners and singles off uh, on their own, you can then manage them properly and feed them to their uh, pregnancy type. And we find that by feeding the singles uh, a starch-based feed like barley, you can not grow their fetus too big so that they um, birth properly. And from when we scan on, uh, from the last trimester of, of lambing, we feed the twinner group a protein base because we find that if they've got twins in them, um, they can handle that higher protein and not blow their fetuses out. But your, your scanner has to be accurate because you can't have too many singles in your twinners because they will not have those lambs. Uh, oh, the use of rain, uh, raceways and good fencing over time we've been developing that on the farm and and we fenced a soil type in the mid 90s and that's been very good too for, for management and um, pasture renovation because you, most southeast properties have got a myriad of soil types and if you can get them on their own in a, in a reasonable scale we, you can actually get small incremental gains out of putting different pastures and what have you on them. Flick, as an agricultural advisor, you've been working on some projects focused on using technology and improving decision-making with Graham. Tell us a little bit about what you've been trialling on Graham's farm and with the other farmers that have been involved with the project. Out at Clothiers, we've been largely looking at soil moisture and also dry matter production. So just trying to identify what the total dry standing matter production is on the farm, just that green product but also uh, the other product or, or the, the dry matter product that's the residual that's left behind the whole idea behind that is trying to enable farmers to be more proactive instead of reactive 
and understanding when the when to pull the lever and make decisions. Graham mentioned earlier that you know they've had to to learn and listen in their in their egg production business. Probably the other thing that you know you will never ever be replaced on a farm is looking and looking at your pastures and understanding what they're doing. But if we can try and assist in that process and and try and fine tune it through the use of technology, we think that'll you know make it a bit easier to to see forward a little bit easier what's what's going to come in the future. Just to give you a bit of an indication, um, at the moment we've got a soil moisture probe on the flats on a kaikuya based pasture, and at the moment from a, from a percentage profile fill in the the top 120 centimeters, uh, it's in exactly the same position as it was last year. So sitting at around about 13% soil moisture. But the really interesting thing to note is that last year, a lot more of that moisture was in the topsoil, in the top 0 to 50 centimetres. So it was able to be utilised by that kaikuya pasture. Whereas this year, we can actually see that a lot more of it is down at depth. Where the perennial loosen pastures are, the deep-rooted perennials, they're going to have the ability to try and still pull some of that moisture. But that particular pasture is probably looking pretty grim at the moment, and uh, and and at least we sort of know, or we can we can determine earlier on that we're going to need to start to supplementary feed pad- stock in that paddock, and what we're going to need to do to try and make sort of better decisions from a from a risk management perspective. The other thing that we're doing is yeah, with that is trying to fine tune as I said, the satellite imagery and, and trying to actually be able to estimate better what's in the paddock. The challenge with that this year has been um, is cloud cover. That's what it relies wholly and solely upon. And there was no clear images from about August to November on Clothier's farm, which has made things a little bit challenging. So I, I don't know. We're just going to have to sit and watch and see how, how useful that technology can be. But in the meantime, we are trying to calibrate it for southeast conditions because in the past a lot of those um, measurements have been determined in the northern areas so we're working pretty closely uh, with with sort of other agencies to, to try and fine-tune that to hopefully get those estimations um, in southeast environments a lot and, and in perennial pasture systems a lot more accurate. Graham have you been using the data that Flick has been interpreting for you and and how have you been using that to make decisions on your farm yeah we've been uh, looking at it we haven't actually been using it to um, make trigger point decisions or because it's on a specific pasture that we haven't actually got that much of we've got about 60 hectares of of kaikuya on our flats and so it's it's more a wait and see where the information takes us in the future when we get more data under our belt has it given you an indication about what's happening around the rest of the farm? Yeah, certainly on the uh, you can relate that to what's happening on the kokuya-based pastures to the loosen-based pastures, and basically, as we all know, when you get a rain event, um, things trigger and grow usually, and uh, the soil probe mirrors that exactly. Flick the. Soil moisture probe at Clothiers is not the only one that's in around the southeast. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's happening around the rest of the southeast at the moment? It's all looking pretty dry, to be honest. Uh, there was a, you know, Clothiers actually got some rain earlier in the year that a lot of a uh, lot of others missed. So the majority of them, um, where there's perennial-based pastures, they they are still accessing moisture, but they're pulling it from from a fairly long way down. 
In those annual based pasture systems, obviously we're not seeing any any growth at the moment at all, but the profile's drying out pretty quick. So look, we're you know all hoping for for another rain to try and boost things away as soon as we can, but we're just going to have to wait wait until that event happens. Uh, I think what it has shown us is that where we expected that um, there might have been some issues with soil acidity and that the loosen might not have actually or been able to, to tap into that moisture, it has been accessing it. So in some cases, it's been really good to see that we are actually, you know, that the plants have got the capacity to get through what we thought was probably a, a hostile environment. I think the key with that is just trying to get them up and established to start with let those roots go down and then let nature take take care of itself. The other thing that we, we are finding um, with the data in general, and I noted that Graham mentioned around uh, rising water table issues and salinity on his farm. Some of the other sites, we're actually seeing the implications that the water table does have, particularly further south or and across towards the coast where we've got the water table and the drainage system, the water table rises quite high over that winter period. We can see that rising and actually um, providing moisture to the crop. And then as it starts to, to disperse, then we actually see the roots starting to chase that, that moisture down and that water table down. It's been really interesting, some of the things that we've actually learnt from this whole process, more about what's happening under the ground and then just trying to match it with what's happening above the ground. You know, going forward at Graham's, I think we put it on the Kaikuya just to try and see what it was doing. He has got a loosened paddock next next door and, and ideally we'd love to just tap in, use the same data transfer unit and tap in and put a, a moisture probe over under the loosen. Um, and I think if we did something like that, that could then be extrapolated across to, to the majority of his farm. And so Flick, can you tell us a bit about what's next for this project? These soil moisture probes all sound pretty exciting, but what's the end game? Next is um, we're looking to try and combine the soil moisture probe data with other tools. We're trying to bring in things like uh, seasonal forecasts. When, when you're making decisions, you're not only looking at the, the soil moisture probes are really good at showing you your current situation, as is your total dry matter that you've got standing on the farm. But what are the other key factors that, that you bring in? So try to bring into one sort of dashboard, uh, farm dashboard, um, seasonal forecasts, up-to-date commodity prices and a farm map just showing your, your current situation. And then based on, you know, the dollars that, that are generally being paid for commodities at that time of the year, climate forecasts and, and the current situation, I think farmers will be able to make uh, more informed and hopefully better decisions. So, you know, I guess for each farmer, it's understanding what their trigger points are and, and then trying to utilise it. If you can sort of look on one, on one platform where you're at and what, the historical pricing's been doing say for, for mutton and you think hang on I'm getting I'm getting short and the mutton price is historically sky high in in May June maybe it's time to flick that that old mob of views trust is trying to package it all together so that all the information or or a lot of the information that farmers use um, is is available to them that sounds great Graham what's next for you and your family farm and what are some of your key learnings from being part of this project? Our goal is to get 10,000 hens and then consolidate and just see how that sits with the whole business. Uh, we're still searching for a bit more land down south probably and because that's a, a real engine room in the spring for us and we'll continue to 
a mile to eight our soils at, at Wollongbong and we are getting there. We haven't got that much left to do but it's um, probably another four or five years and then once we get it all, that all pastured down we'll we'll just fine tune our operations and keep doing the benchmarking and, and you know do the one two percenters and just keep striving to improve and you know we'll just keep learning going off farm and and doing updates so that you you just keep an open mind and and uh, keep learning uh, because you're always learning yeah and we're gonna we're gonna try after looking at the strewn data on the reefinator we're gonna do a bit of reefinating down at uh, down the southern blocks this year that'll be excellent we'll have to have you back to talk about that in a couple (laughs) of years time Graham and Flick, thanks so much for sharing your story with us today. Today's chat is part of a broader project aimed at building the resilience and profitability of cropping and grazing farmers, and it's funded by the National Landcare Program Smart Farming Partnerships. The project is delivered by a consortium comprised of Southern Farming Systems, Agriculture KI, Federation University, Precision Agriculture, Glenelg Hopkins Catchment Management Authority, Australian Fertiliser Services Association, Victorian Lime Producers Association and the Department of Economic Development, Jobs, Transport and Resources. Thanks for listening to The Prosperous Farmer, a MacKillop Farm Management Group production. You can rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at MacKillop Group or check out our website at www.mackillopgroup.com.au. Thanks for listening and see you next time.